so stupid he comes across in front of me every single time he overtakes. Where does he want me to go off the track? No! Hi, I'm Andre Harrison, and welcome to Jackass, or in this case, Motorsport 101. Good evening, everybody. I am your friendly neighbour, as Mr. Andre Harrison, and welcome to episode 46, the Valentino Rossi edition of the Motorsport 101 podcast. And given it's a MotoGP weekend, uh, you'd have been pardoned us for thinking it may have very well been that, given that uh, the entire paddock was kind of hoping that Rossi would win back-to-back races for the first time in, like, eight years. <laughs> but uh, turns out it didn't happen, but instead we got one of the all-time most ridiculous MotoGP races ever. Stop me if you've heard that one before. It's happened a lot on this show. Don't ask me how MotoGP keeps finding a way to one-up itself. Anyway, back for the first time in a month. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back, Mr. Adam Johnson. Yes, and I chose a really good time to come back because things are going... Oh, yeah, not, are they? Help save us from this country. <laughs> it's in flames. Our football team are getting pelted with rocks in the street. As our Polish people, it's Armageddon is happening. So thank Christ we have motorsports to escape to. This is why people say politics and motorsports should never mix, because people like motorsport to not have any politics in it. Politics is motorsport. What are you talking oh, that's about? That's the annoying thing, isn't it? But at least moaning about Bernie is more fun than moaning about Nigel Farage. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, <laughs> hey, hey. We are not going political on this show. I refuse. Why? <laughs> <Okay>, not- <laughs> <laughs> King, just because you're studying political science doesn't mean you get to start talking about it and invading this podcast with it. Do you understand? Well, at least yeah. he's safe for another five months until Donald Trump takes over. Oh, <laughs> then we'll literally be like, please, can we move to your country? No, I wanted to come to yours. Australia, we're coming for you. Yeah, at at, le- at least I have, at least the, the Bernie puns are over because American F1 fans are just terrible when it comes to Bernie puns. Cause, oh, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was horrendous. Yeah, it's one of those things where the alternate intro for this episode was going to be, holy shit, the British referendum is going to kill us all. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, uh, the the only thing worse than those puns were the puns that some of us on Twitter were trying to make during results night for the referendum. That was the worst thing I've ever seen in the history of Twitter. You, Chris Cook, you guys could go straight to hell for that. It was awful. NerdCube was trying to make it into a wrestling match with some success. And Nerdcube can kiss my ass as well. I'm not. I'm not happy with that. Um, Let's be honest. It wasn't the worst thing that happened that night. No, no, it wasn't. But uh, I'm sure you already know why that is. But uh, also, Mr. King, hello, sir. Hey, hey, yeah. Uh, I'm setting up a refugee camp in my backyard. So any British people <laughs> want to come to the U.S., just hit me up on Twitter. I'm surprised <laughs> not to rub it in further. I'm surprised Ryan isn't going by the name Bjorn Ryan Sikingson. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I, know, I know you're a Game of Thrones watcher, aren't you, King? I mean, you thought you'd fit right in there with a name like that, wouldn't you? No? <laughs> no, Trump's found him. Okay. 
<laughs> he, like, he, mentioned, he mentioned the R word, refugees, and his, and his microphone's been seized by the, by, by the, by the public at large. Um. <laughs> Nigel Farage is on his private jet somewhere over the, the mid-Atlantic right now, scanning the frequencies. As you do, I'm sure he'll come back in a minute after he, he appeals, like all Americans do, and he doesn't punish for anything over there. Right, so in in this stacked episode of Motorsport 101, we'll be talking about the MotoGP Grand Prix of Assen, and uh, the Johnny Knoxville intro was for good reason. He was a thousand to one on Thursday, but Jack Miller has won the Grand Prix of Assen. We'll talk about just how that happened and how friggin' ridiculous the entire race was. How Assen pretty much has its own microclimate at this point. How Yoni Hernandez was an even bigger outsider and still somehow very nearly won. And all of that as a heavily, heavily rain-affected Assen took place. We had two races for the price of one. We'll be talking about Valentina Rossi hitting the deck. Scott Redding on the podium. We have to eat an enormous slice of humble pie. Tons of fallers, Jorge Lorenzo struggling, and Mark Marquez celebrating second place like he just won the championship. All that and much, much more in that MotoGP race, as well as a, a very special weekend. For the first time in a long time, we had three brand new winners in all three classes. Takanakagami finally breaks the glass ceiling, cashes his money in the bank title, and wins a <laughs> Moto2 race ahead of Johan Zarco. He's now the Dean um, Ambrose of motorcycle racing. Pretty much, essentially, yeah. And Taka, the fan favourite, has actually finally gone and won, won, won a Grand Prix. J- Japan's first win, I believe, since 2010. So that's kind of a big deal as well. Um, and also, yet again, Moto3 finds another way to one-up itself with another absolutely incredible Grand Prix. Won by uh, Francisco Bagnaia. Um, another brand new win. And the first ever Moto3 victory for the Mahindra factory team out of india so congratulations to those guys as well and yeah i feel like i'm suffering deja vu talking about just how friggin brilliant moto 3 is but it, it just really is that good um we'll, t- we'll talk also about indycar and uh indycar back at road america for the first time since its champ car days as willpower pretty much dominated the entire weekend to take his second win in three rounds ahead of tony Kanaan, who seemed to think it was 2010 all of a sudden which is kind of cool to see um, and Graham Rahal rounded off the podium in third. Simon Pagenaud suffered some real bad luck. Connor Daly has a big suspension failure, which changed, which changed the entire Grand Prix. I'll be complaining about push the pass a little bit, and we talk about Joseph Newgarden's collarbone. It's more inciting than it sounds, trust me. And a bunch of other news, including Bernie Eccleston wanting to fix payments in Formula 1, which he believes are unfair. Team Aguri leaving Formula E at the end of the season. Mitch Evans is still really, really salty about not being in Formula 1. Mark we'll Webber 2.0. Yeah, again. We'll talk about Top Gear Episode 5 and the story that Matt LeBlanc apparently wants out. We'll talk about Boston Grand Prix's latest debacle involving ticket refunds. And we'll answer a bunch of your questions on Twitter that you sent into the show this week as well. So all that and inevitably much, much more on this week's episode of Motorsport 101. And... Uh, so, let's talk about the Grand Prix of Assen, um, which is basically considered one of the jewels in the crown in the MotoGP calendar. It, it, it's, it's Mecca for bike races these days on the calendar. And for the first time ever, we had Assen on a, on a Sunday um, this, instead of a Saturday. The fan day and the, uh, the promoters wanted more guys at the venue. And they, like, Sunday's normally a holiday in, uh, in, uh, in Holland. And uh, they, they, for the first time ever, they thought, sod the holiday. We'll get more fans in if we go on a Sunday. And that's what they did. And uh, the first ever 
uh, Sunday weekend of MotoGP in Aston was an absolute, oh, are you freaking kidding me kind of weekend. And uh, Let's put it in some perspective. I've watched the MotoGP race back about two to three times now, and I'm still not entirely sure what actually happened. <laughs> me neither, but... Uh, Basically, <laughs> basically we got two races for the price of one now the race started it was a wet race from the start um, it, it was raining towards the end of the Moto2 race which we'll get to later the, the Moto2 race was, was ended with a red flag a lap and a half early um, because the rain was coming down and they thought it was un, they thought it was unsafe and they thought sod it we might as well end the race now um, we'll get to that later on in the show obviously but um, yeah pretty um, it was the rain was coming down. The guys started on the wet tire, and the rain only got heavier as the as, as the race would go on. And uh, King, it seems to be that you know when the rain comes out, the same few guys seem to come out and really relish it. And in this case, it was Danilo Petrucci, and I think it was the Aspar of Yoni Hernandez on a two-year-old bike that was absolutely flying through the field. Yes, I mean it, it seems like some riders have a real grip on wet weather racing but obviously rain doesn't tend to be a common sight in MotoGP so when it mm. happens it's pretty much a surprise to who's actually good and who isn't yeah exactly I mean, you, you always get the shock names coming through we saw it at Masano last year where it was it, I mean, it was more Bradley Smith that rode out through the storm and didn't change his bike at all that would go on to finish in second that day and we also saw guys like Scott Redding who had fallen and then got back on the bike and still finished on the podium, which Rebecca James still reminds me of every week, um, basically. But um, it seems to be the same same three or four guys that would always come through when it when it was when it was wet and Dino Petrucci was coming through on on that GP15 that he's on. Yoni Hernandez was incredibly strong. I mean, he was the only guy in the field that had the soft rear wet tire during the race, and it seemed to come through beautifully because he had a, about a three and a half second lead in the early goings of the race, um, ahead of Valentino Rossi in second and Andrea Vizioso in third. The rain got heavier and heavier, and it seems like it seems not in that first race that as, it, as the heavier it got, the more it seemed to bunch the field up, because by the time you got to lap 12, 13, the top six were pretty much right next to each other. Yeah. <laughs> Johnson, is that you? <laughs> it's... Yeah, it was... I... Like I said to you before, I'm not entirely sure what actually went down. Like, this was the sort of race where, yeah, you know those PC racing games where you can edit the AI levels? Yeah. Sure. It was like someone set all the AI levels for every bike in the field to 50. And, like, literally, you just had this mad jumbled grid where it was like, oh, it's Rossi leading because he's just been passed by Yoni Hernandez. Yeah. Scott Redding's mugged him off on the start, and now someone else has come through. Espagaro's fallen off and is now the worst thing in the world, just ahead of Lorenzo, who's last. Someone else, yeah literally and and can i just ask it was mentioned on commentary about how there's slightly less electronic aids on the bikes these days do you think that contributed to it uh, a little bit in this race people finding the bikes harder to handle or would this race have turned out either way no matter what they had on the bikes it was just that sort of condition uh, maybe a little bit um these bikes have been been more difficult to handle because of the standardized ecus that every bike now runs in the field so that may have been a factor um, it's impossible to really say how much of a factor it was. Um, nobody really asked the riders about it in the post-race or anything like that, but you're absolutely right. It does seem to be the same guys that's coming through. And like Towards the end of that initial first race, it was just, I think, starting to get to the point where 
it could have very easily been time to change bikes. Like around lap 10 or so, there was a definite dry line starting to come through. Um, Aston, when it dries, it dries very quickly. If anyone remembers the World Superbike races from earlier this season, that's how Josh Brooks led a good chunk of that race because he was able to get out first of all and he was excellent in the wet and as the track was drying out very quickly guys were changing bikes around very quickly um we so if anyone's seen more super bikes from Aston, go find the clips of those are two great races by the way but uh one of them was was heavily rain affected um same case here the dry line was just starting to come through and it rained even harder like full-on monsoon conditions for about four or five laps afterwards and uh it bunched everybody back up the hondas were struggling at that point in time um, Pedrosa and Marquez were further down the field um, Scott Redding was, had suddenly become the fastest man on track by like two seconds a lap which was just the craziest thing to watch like like, like Redding apparently said after this he was going over and beyond the limit to try and catch up um, in tribute to Louis Salom in, in, in his own words he, was, he, was, he felt like he had to just, he felt, I'm just going to go for it here basically and see what happens um and that's what he did, and he was very nearly about to lead the Grand Prix at one point until the rain got really, really heavy, and then everybody was kind of bunching up with each other, and it basically got to a point where it was so dangerous. Like, Yoni Hernandez, who had led the race by about four seconds, had crashed, and we were like, no, Yoni! <laughs> like, there was many, many Colombian tears being shed at the, at the end of that one. You know, the second battle, they're getting knocked out of the Copper America by Chile. But... <laughs> <laughs> There's a slocker joke there for you, but um, and not the obvious after... one. No, no. See, I'm I'm a hipster like that, and I can I can I can I shouldn't really be throwing shade at other football teams right now, given I'm English. <laughs> but you know, we have absolutely no right to do that. No, no, we don't. But uh, there you go. I, I don't care. But uh, everybody's bunched up, and then they threw the red flag. Like it, 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 the rain, the, the the rain was far too heavy for it to continue. It was. Aston was quickly turning into a river and it was really strange they mentioned this King because it seems like Aston has its own microclimate I know it's a very short track it's only about 2.2 miles long but it's actually a very wide circuit it's about a kilometre from one one end, end of the track to the other so you can get really concentrated spots of rain but Back in the, I think, I think you may have saw this King during the coverage that Gavin Emick is in like the Michelin pit garage and you can see like there's blue skies outside, <laughs> but, but in certain parts of track it was just absolutely chucking it down with rain. King, it was very bizarre, wasn't it? Yeah, it, I don't know. Like I've I've been to the Netherlands, and the the weather can be like that in the summer, where where it could be raining for about half an hour, and then later it it's just clear. Yeah, and that, that's what happened. Like it was super, it was super raining for like twenty minutes, and then it just stopped. And then it's like, oh, if it looked like you were not getting a restart, and a lot of the reason why was that riders were complaining there was literally no visibility out there because of all the spray and the fact that Rossi, who was one of the leaders of the race, um, his rear light had stopped working, or maybe it wasn't on, which was a you know a possible controversial safety concern that was never addressed. Um, but uh, the ring very quickly stopped, and we got a race again. We had two sighting laps, and it was the quick restart procedure that we saw. Um, Magello in Moto2, which didn't quite work out then. It seemed they've actually read the rule book now and everybody was everybody was up to speed this time around, so no issues where that was concerned. Um, they put them back on, back in the field in the order that the, the race was stopped. Um, the rule is, it's like Formula 1, you go back two laps um, on, a, on a red flag, you go back, the red flag was pulled on lap 16 of 26, 
Um, they went back to lap 14 and took the result from there to start the grid for the second part of the race. So Dovi was on was 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 leading from Rossi. Um, I believe it was Red in third, and then the two Hondas of uh, Marquez and Pedrosa. Um, they restarted the race and. Uh, King, they all started dropping like flies. <laughs> yeah. It seemed like no one was prepared for the conditions at all. Yeah, it's weird because they just had a really wet track, but it was clearly drying out, and it was a matter of confidence, clearly. The race was restarted. It was a 12-lap race, and in the space of 12 laps, um, I believe it was something like eight men had not made the finish. Um, Crutchlow had never completed a lap. Hernandez couldn't get his bike fixed in time after his crash in the first half of the race, but in the space of, in fact, I quite yeah, in the space of four laps, Nino Petrucci, Andrea De Vizioso, Alicia Spagaro, Valentino Rossi, and Michele Piro had all crashed, and Alvaro Bautista also went down on the um, also went down on the final lap. Bradley Smith got back on after crashing and finished three laps down. Um, which wasn't which wasn't ideal either by any stretch of the imagination, but they all dropped like flies. And Dovi, who was arguably the fastest man on track throughout the entirety of the race in Ducati, as we all know, seemed to fly in the wet. Just wasn't just just did just 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 binned it on on the second lap round, and they all just dropped off. And Petrucci dropping it was a real surprise to me because he's just so good in the wet. Um, just didn't quite work out for him. Alicia went down. That's the worst thing ever, according to Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, Van and Valentino Rossi went down. Like, like Rossi never crashes. There's a Rossi for Rossi to go down, and it was turn ten, the bottom of the hill. Well, um, the I think the, you may see it's, you go past a long street, you're coming through the back of the forest, and that's the lowest point in their track in terms of undulation. And turn ten had caught out so many people all weekend. In fact, fun fact from Gavin Emmett that like this weekend, every single MotoGP rider had crashed a bike at least once this weekend. <laughs> Literally a, everyone. Everyone had had at least one crash at the weekend. Wow. Like, Can I also say, uh, just quickly, what was quite funny <coughs> about when uh, Rossi went down was that the, the commentators up until that point, it was almost like, oh, well, it is difficult conditions out there and everything. But it was almost like there was, there was a sense of, in the back of their minds, they were like, well, Rossi's not going to go down, is he? Everyone else will, but Rossi's just that. Rossi's gone down as well? What? <laughs> no! <laughs> like, it was almost like, no. No, Rossi. This doesn't happen to Rossi. It just it, maybe they've been playing their copies of Valentino Rossi the game that day. It, it, it was a very sad day. It's like he had to pull his trousers back up. The poor fella. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, Rossi had gone down. It's like he spent like an entire lap trying to get the bike working again, and he just couldn't do it. He slapped the fuel tank in frustration. He knew how much this was going to cost him in terms of the championship battle, and the only blessing. In this case, in his in his, in his context, was that Jorge Lorenzo was also really struggling out there, King. Yeah, where Jorge also seemed like to be one of those riders who just couldn't get up to speed. I don't know whether you know he had problems putting the power down out of the corners or something, but it, it just didn't seem like he could keep up. I, I have a theory as well in this. I believe this is the ghost of Assen's past coming back to haunt Lorenzo. I mean, I don't know if you ever remember this one, but do you remember 2013 where Jorge Lorenzo at Assen had that enormous crash and broke his collarbone? Yes. <laughs> that that was a 170-mile-an-hour crash down the back of Assen. He flipped off the front of the bike, landed straight on his, straight, landed straight on his shoulder, had to fly back to Barcelona, 
carry out an emergency operation on it, flew back to, to, flew back to Assen and was able to race the next day and finished in fifth place. It's one of the bravest and most superhuman rides I've ever seen in MotoGP. But he's never been the same guy in the wet since then. Like he was obviously his riding style kind of suits a wet race where it's all about being smooth, you know, you know, great throttle management, you know, the confidence. He's not been that guy since. Like Aragon was kind of a fluke because I think Marquez would have easily won that race if they actually did the smart thing and actually pit rather than try to ride out the storm, which was just a terrible idea. Um, but that's the only time Lorenzo's ever come close to winning at all, actually win a wet race since then. And he finished in tenth in the end, and he was he was at nineteenth during the restart. He kind of benefited from everybody else crashing. Um, so Lorenzo took a, took a very um, undeserving, I would argue, six points given how slow he was. But, but um, Lorenzo, I think, still suffering the ghosts of Assen past, so to speak. But in in the restart, the man that found the confidence to really go for it, <laughs> I still can't believe I'm saying this, was Jack Miller on the satellite Mark VDS Honda and he would go on to win the race by a couple of seconds over Mark Marquez and I mean you saw the celebrations Johnson it was it was a sight to behold the Mark VDS team had absolutely lost their minds they've had a real season and a half of struggles with Scott Redding being through the team and now Miller and Rabat, and they seem to be rebuilding. They seem to be the worst team in the paddock right now, but th- this was just nothing short of a miracle win for him. It literally, like, to put it into context, you, you mentioned the odds earlier. Jack Miller mm. was 1,000 to 1 to win this race. For context... Alexander Rossi was 200 to 1 to win the 500. That's going to be some perspective for you. Northern there, Ireland were 500 to 1 to win the Euro, European Championships when it started. Iceland yeah. were 100 to 1. Mm-hmm. And probably still are that close now. Um, this, yeah, again, what on earth just happened? Because we're, like, in MotoGP, very rarely are the, like, we know that rain is the great equaliser, but even so, this is MotoGP. We have the similar sort of people up front. I mean, you'd probably expect if there was a rain race and mix things up, maybe someone like Maverick Vinales, who's often there or thereabouts, he'd be the one to profit. Not someone who... For most of last year, I listened to Bike Live. We talked about him here on this show. People were wondering just how badly has this gone wrong for him going up from Moto3 straight into GP. It just wasn't working for him. He was frustrated. The Mm -hmm. team was not getting it together. And then this is like, this is beyond a fairy tale. This is like the sort of sports film where like everything's falling apart, but they're like, no, man, we need to stick together for the power of friendship and the power of teamwork or (laughs) something. That's how they put it in the film. Have you been watching Yu-Gi-Oh again, Johnson, with mentions of friendship and whatnot? Yeah, all the time, man. <laughs> all the time. But no, it's, they must have been watching plenty of tapes beforehand because they kept somehow kept the, the um, they somehow kept their heads up. And it's just maybe it's it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, when you just you sort of have nothing left to lose. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, you know, someone in those conditions nails the setup and nails the approach and just gets it so right when everyone else aren't quite there. Um, it's... Uh, like, there aren't words. There kind of really aren't words. This has been... Yeah. <laughs> words are not it's coming so- right now. Words are not happening. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll try and fill in the blanks here a little bit. Like, for me, 
Jack Miller was obviously very famous back in 2014 for being the guy that did the double jump. And, you know, he went straight from Moto3 to MotoGP after, after finishing runner-up in the series to Alex Marquez that season. Um, he thought, sod it, I'm not going to bother with Moto2. I'm going straight to the top class with Honda. I'm going to try this experiment out. And like you say, he struggled ever since. He went to LCR, first of all, alongside Cal Crutchlow. He was never, you know, he, he never really featured anywhere. But there, there is one thing I noticed about Miller. He is fearless when it rains. And he was running, I believe, in eighth place at Silverstone last year when it was raining. And he looked like he was in a really good position until he ran over the... Sh- ran over the chicane at Silverstone and T-boned himself and Cal Crutchlow, his teammate that day. And, like, it was like, oh, Miller's done it again. He's, like, he had the bad reputation of being a really, you know, bad crasher. And, you know, he had he had the rep of just being a guy that, you know, didn't look like... He looked like he was out of his depth in MotoGP. And he, he'd been warned by race direction on numerous occasions. Yeah, it was this very race last year where he took out Hector Barbera, and I think he rode over Barbera's leg um, at, at that same final chicane in Aston last year, and, he, and Race Direction gave him a warning. He's like, do, do not do this again, Jack, basically, because he'd been involved in, in many scrapes and aggressive accidents um, dating back to his Moto3 days, and, you know, his job his job is on the line this year. Like he's in, he's in, This is the last year of the three-year deal he signed with Honda, when he took this experiment on and this may very well save his job this could be a job saving ride from jack miller because i wasn't sure he was going to be the guy going forward for honda as a rider of the future if this had kept up but um it was a it was a very touching celebration um, at park ferme he he was he was bawling his eyes out and he said to the interviewer at the end of the Grand Prix, he said, I hope I've proven to people that I'm not an idiot. <laughs> and, um, you know, you know him being an Australian, you know, it, there's no filter. It was just, you know, you may think he said the word dickhead about three times during the press conference, um, being a typical Aussie. Um, just, you can't help but swear. And, you know, he kind of, like, it was his first press conference in quite some time. So, obviously, you know, he must have missed it. But It um, kind of reminded me a little bit, that post-race interview where he's like, I hope I've proven I'm not an idiot. It's almost mm. like the moment Mankind won the WWF World Championship in 1999. That's the yeah. moment where it's like, people just thought I was a loser. You know, just like this man who's just been like, <laughs> some people wrote him off as a no-hoper. Others were like, nah, he's going to do it one day. And then he actually does. And you're like, okay. And the, just that interview, that emotional mm. post-match or post-race thing. I mean, great thing in this case, it being MotoGP, it was, it was unscripted and him being Australian, it was completely off the cuff. This is exactly. wonderful. I love how they just don't have a filter for things. One of the things I love Australians in general. Yeah. I also love that uh, Cal Crutchlow, his former teammate, gave him a very, very big embrace and was genuinely very delighted for him. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of his old buddies were, who had given him very sporting congratulations. And Maverick Vinales, who he used to race against in that Moto Three category, was one of the first guys to congratulate him as well. I think, the, the, like, it was a real feel-good moment for Moto GP because, and here's some stats to back this up. This was the first independent win in Moto GP since that absolutely epic race at Estoril 2006 that was won by Tony Elias on that Grassini Honda back then where he beat Valentino Rossi by literally two thousandths of a second. Um, so that that was it's been nearly ten years since an independent bike had won 
a Grand Prix. You could see just how delighted the Mark VDS came out. Mark van der Strappen there, obviously the billionaire that owns the team, was absolutely delighted. He was going around, you know, the, the Belgian way, just kissing everybody in the paddock um, the whole way through. They, they were, they were, they had lost their minds at this point. And uh, he was on the podium. He got drenched in champagne, and Mark Marquez jumped on his back, which I thought was also hilarious. Um, but uh, speaking of Marquez, I mean. King, did you see a celebration when he crossed the line? He looked like he just won the championship. He was absolutely <laughs> delighted with himself that he finished in second. Yeah, he finished, he finished in second, and basically anyone else who was in title contention went down. Yeah, and, and, and you know, this was an incredible result for Marquez. And I've said it before, the man is doing the Lord's work on that bike right now, and Honda is not a... Like, like, they, like he said it himself, Honda was not strong this weekend, when, especially when it came to... Um, wet weather um, they, they, they normally are much more confident in the rain and they said that the grip just wasn't there for them it took a long time for heat to get into the into the wet tyres for the Honda and it didn't really work and you know Marquez said in the post-race um, press conference that um, he said that he felt like um, like Honda was telling him the whole weekend just finish the race just finish the race just finish the race <laughs> and it was ringing in his ears the entire time and he said I didn't listen. I was still pushing at the end. But as you said, Miller was just legitimately that quick. <laughs> and, um, yeah, Marquez just didn't have an answer for him. But 20 very, very well-earned points. And, uh, King, like, it seems that Marquez is maturing. That's terrifying, isn't it, for the rest of this field? <laughs> Matty, he's starting to re refine his pace, know that sometimes the best thing to do is finish and not worry about having to go as quickly as possible. Yeah, he, like, it's, it, he's finished on the podium every round but one, and that was only the, the Le Mans crash where he actually got back up and finished in 13th. Um, so he scored points in every round, and he's also finished on the podium in all but one. He has 145 points now in the championship, and now has extended his lead to 24 points over Jorge Lorenzo in second, and he's now 42 points ahead of Valentino Rossi. And it's the Saxon ring next, where Marquez has not lost a race since 2010. So it's, it's like the Saxon ring is almost as guaranteed a Marquez win as it gets. So, yeah, like it's it, it, it's it's coming up roses for Marquez right now, despite the fact that um, you can make the argument the bike is still second best in the paddock over most tracks in a weekend. But even so, Marquez came over the line, celebrated like he'd won the championship. He was absolutely delighted with that second place. And even the interviewer told him after the race, was like, I've never seen a man so happy to finish in second. <laughs> and, uh, and Marquez was like, yep, you're absolutely right. <laughs> um, running down the, the result after that crazy 12-lap race, um, the second race, I should say, um, after the restart, Jack Miller wins by 1.9 seconds over Mark Marquez. Scott Redding, a brilliant ride from him to finish in third, matching his career-high finish. Um, on the Pramac Ducati, he was stupidly fast that race. He dedicated his podium to Louis Salon, which was also very nice to see. Paul Spagaro, another superb ride from him on the independent Yamaha in fourth. Doing a real good job this season again. Ahead of Andrea Iannone, who started from the back to finish in fifth. Um, great job for me and only recovering from that from that back of the grid penalty he had. Um, Hector Barbara in sixth place. Another great result for him as well in that two-year-old Ducati. Eugene Laverty with another great result for the Aspar team in seventh place. 
you, you see a pattern here. Basically, if you finished, you've probably batted above your average, quite frankly. Yes. Um, Stefan Bradl in eighth. I think that's his best performance since he joined Aprilia. Maverick Vinales said he had rear tyre struggles, but still finished in ninth, just ahead of Jorge Lorenzo, we mentioned earlier, in tenth. Tito Rabat had his best finish in MotoGP so far in 11th, ahead of poor old Danny Pedrosa, who was actually a minute 54 behind. Um, not good for Danny Pedrosa, a miserable weekend. Then he crashed in, in the first race, he crashed in qualifying, just a bad, bad weekend across the board for Danny P. Um, you had to start the race from 16th as well, just not, just not a good weekend for Danny at all, really. And Bradley Smith was the last of the finishers um, in 13th place, three laps down, because he also crashed in the middle of that second race, but was able to continue. Um, again, we mentioned that six, eight riders did not make the end, and that was Alvaro Bautista, Michele Piro, who was filling in for Loris Baz at Eventia, uh, Valentino Rossi, obviously, Alicia Spagaro, Andrea De Vizioso, who crashed from the lead, Vidalo Petrucci, who crashed from third, Kyle Crutcher didn't make the restart. He's having a real miserable season right now. And Yoni Hernandez, who, who could not make the restart after... His brilliant first race was uh, ruined by his crash, unfortunately. Um, looking at the championship standings real quick, Mark Marquez has a 24-point lead now on Jorge Lorenzo. Um, on 121, Valentino Rossi on 103, Danny Pedrosa on 86, ahead of, ahead of Maverick Vinales with 79. Uh, and Paul Spagro is still top independent now by 14 points. Um, with 72, and uh, guys, guess what? Hector Barbera is still the top Ducati in the championship right now with 58 points, six ahead of Andrea Iannone. Um, oh, dear. That that like, that like says a lot about a Ducati's factory year this season if the top Ducati in the team is on a two-year-old bike. In that it's not gone well. <laughs> yeah, that says it all. So, yeah, that was... So, that's, yeah, so let's send some fun stats. Like I said, that was the first independent win in nearly a decade. It was the first Australian win in MotoGP since some guy called Casey Stoner won at Phillip Island back in 2012. Um, what happened so, to him? I swear yeah. I remember the name from somewhere. Mm, mm, sounds familiar. <laughs> um, a little bit of MotoGP silly season news before we move on real quick to Moto2, but... Um, Turns out, King, that uh, Alicia Spagaro has gone to Aprilia, and uh, it seems like he kind of took his ball and went home in a bit of a half. Oh, King's muted his mic. Oh, I was on the phone call. I didn't, I didn't see he was away on the phone call a second there. So, yeah, Johnson, have you heard this news about Alicia Spagaro joining Aprilia? I have, and it, like the silly season really appears to have got interesting from the mo from the point of Aprilia coming in. It's almost been like the the Haas announcement last year in Formula One, but I think a lot of people called the Formula One. Uh, predictions a lot more so but I think what's been interesting about this silly season is that people have been a lot more vocal about it Spygaro has been yes. uh, if I'm very right in saying um, in most press conferences there, there's been some shade thrown around it's, it's clear he's not been very pleased with the current direction um, yeah, and with his own future kind of being disregarded so it's, it's been very interesting how vocal and you know there's not been much speculation in terms of the MotoGP silly season this year a lot of stuff has actually been coming out from all the camps involved, which has made it kind of interesting in a very different way. Yeah, exactly. Basically, Alicia Spagaro, he said in a press conference on Sunday that he knew his future with Suzuki was finished when they announced Andre Iannone was going to join. Um, he kind of knew at this point his goose was cooked, basically, and he, he said a couple of weeks ago that he felt betrayed by the team for them signing Ian only like how they did and never told him a damn word about it when you know, he was really angry about it and he kind of knew that the situation was that his, his position was almost untenable 
on that team and he felt like well that's the end of that and off he goes to Aprilia and Aprilia's clearing the decks we already know that Sam Lowe's is joining them for Moto2 next year um, so as we now know Sam, Sam Lowe's and Richard Spagro and that's now completed the factory lineups in MotoGP so Marquez and Pedrosa at Honda uh, Vinales and Rossi at Yamaha Lorenzo and Davizioso at Ducati next year Pole and uh, Bradley Smith at KTM, and now Rins and Dovi at Suzuki. So, sorry, Rins and Iannone, I should say, at Suzuki, alongside Alicia Spagro and Sam Loza, the prettiest. So all, all 12 factory seats in MotoGP are now gone. Um, I think the only real bigger seat up for grabs now is Johan Zarco potentially going to Tech 3. We'll have to wait and see how that goes because, again, Zarco was real salty about the fact that he's pulled out. Because he was, he was going to be in the Suzuki eight hours this year for Suzuki. He tested the bike last week, but he's already gone back and saying, I'm, I'm not going to bother now um, doing the Suzuki eight hours. I think, like, King, uh, you back, by the way, King? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, like, I heard the story that he was going to do the Suzuki eight hours. He pulled out, and it's like Suzuki are basically just giving him a contract to hold. So here, hold this while we figure ourselves out for a minute, because I think Suzuki were trying hard to get like the last seat on the grid, and it never came about. And Zarco was basically hung out to dry. <laughs> yeah, it seemed. Yeah, it seemed like Suzuki was going to expand the three bikes, and it it never came to fruition. And basically, it was a placeholder contract. I I. I don't know whether it was a placeholder in the sense of basically they're trying to prove to you know Dorna to say that yeah we have a rider for a third bike or or it was they were legitimately want him on a third bike it was weird I mean they let him test it they've, they've oh, oh yeah you can ride for that for our factory team at Suzuka and then Zarco quite quickly realized the game was up when they had two riders already signed for next year so he quite quickly pulled out of that obligation. I was like, well, what's the point? You guys are not giving me the opportunity here to sod it. Uh, I mean, he could have tried to hang in there and force a Sauber scenario, but then again, who wants lawsuits at the start of next year's MotoGP season? That would get tetchy. Very, very tetchy. <laughs> Speaking of which, we never really talked about Alex Rins going to Suzuki. We didn't mention it on last week's show, mostly because we forgot. <laughs> <laughs> but we never actually talked about Alex Rins going to Suzuki. And um, Adam, I think that's a really great move for Alex Rins. It's a step up, isn't it? It's a move up, and everyone's sort of looking for those uh, factory seats uh, just mm. on the uh, on the outside looking in. So Rins uh, th- is one of those breakout guys that we were hoping would make a move to one of those factory seats, and Suzuki right there or thereabouts is where um, uh, Vinales is at the moment. I think I got that right. Um, yeah. Yes. And he's, you know, we're, we're seeing where it's gone from here. You know, maybe he's not going to be challenging for outright wins on the thing, but he's there or thereabouts. He's, they're very close, those things. So this is generally people in this silly season are sort of coming out better than where they started in general. Yeah, is that seemingly the theme? I think Tech 3 being as bad as they've been this season and Paul Spagger basically pinning the team on his back has... I think masked the fact that that satellite team is not good enough anymore. And mm. basically, it's quickly becoming the team that nobody wants to ride for anymore because Rins was rumoured to go to that seat and maybe become like a Yamaha factory development rider and then maybe take Rossi's seat after he retires. But 
Reigns was like, nope, nope, give me factory now, please. Now, now, now. <laughs> and uh, he got the Suzuki seat instead, basically. And hey, he's going to be 21 next year. And he's going to be riding a factory seat right away. Does that remind you of anybody that, that rides for that team? No? Uh, you know, it seems like a familiar story at this point. But um, City season is going around. It looks like Zarko might end up at Tech 3 as like, the last decent seat available. But why would you ever want to ride for Tech 3 knowing you've got no chance of ever riding the factory bike? I mean, it just it just seems kind of redundant to me. But hey, what do I know? Um, so that's that taken care of. Moto2 real quick. And uh, King, after years and years of seeing Taka ride and come close... Takanakagami finally wins. Yes. Oh, it, it seemed like oh, something. It, it's it seriously seemed like something that was never going to happen. That you know, Taka would just spend the rest of his career in Moto Two, being you know somewhat near the the front, but not you know good enough to win. But it finally happened. It finally happened. It was a race that, you know, his pace was just sensational in the second half of the race. He broke off the lead in pack of two or three. And then it was up to guys like Zarko, who had a terrible start, to uh, try and give chase. And, you know, I, I was still worried we were getting, we were going to get the old, uh, the same old Taka, uh, you know, tropes that we had from yesteryear where back in 2013, he'd, he'd finished second so many times because basically he'd gone out too hard at the start of the race wrecked his tyres and was, you know, reeled in by guys like Paul Spagaro and Scott Redding and Tito Rabat a few years ago in Moto in Moto 2. And, um, like, Taka was the nearly man, and I'm just delighted he was finally able uh, to, to get that first win uh, under his belt. And uh, a real nice moment for Japan, because Japan's really struggled in uh, Grand Prix motorcycle racing for some time. This was the first... Japanese win since uh, the Catalan the Catalan Grand Prix of 2010, the very first season of Moto2, where, where Yuki Takahashi had won for the Tech 3 camp in a race he dominated to win by five seconds. That, so that was so we've had you know over six years since a, since a Japanese rider has won a Grand Prix, which says a lot about the state of the country and when it comes to producing top tier talent, which is kind of a shame because Tak has been like the leading man for Japan for the last few years but hey maybe you can kick on from here maybe win a couple more I'd like to see him do that because he's a very talented rider always has been um, just never had the consistency to really get a win but you know Johan Zarco in second place again another really solid Zarco result I mean again he had a terrible start but recovered well to finish in second he finished ahead of Frankie Morbidelli um, in third, his first podium of the year, um, ahead of Sam Lowe's, who didn't ever really quite look like he was going to win, but you know, a solid result from him. Lorenzo Baldessari in fifth, ahead of Alex Rins, Simone Corsi. Good result for Alex Marquez in eighth. He needed one of those, for God's sake. Dominique Agata in ninth, and Jonas Volga rounding off the top ten. It's looking like it's going to be a three-way fight for the championship between Zarco and Rins, who are joint level on 126. Zarco ahead of, on the fact he's got one extra race win than Rins does. And uh, Sam Lowe is in third, five points back on 121. Anyway, Johnson, Moto3, holy shit. <laughs> well, I said earlier, I wasn't quite much sure how... What sh I, I can't even get my words out now. This is literally how mad <laughs> things have gone. I wasn't sure what happened in the MotoGP race, but my, like... Ah, well, oh, my head. Like, Moto3 is literally, like, the sort of race... Uh, the sort of racing series at the moment where... It kind of goes, oh, you thought that last race was good? Bitch, you ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah. <laughs> We're bringing it for this one. It's like, like the only other series I can think is come that close in 2016 has been NASCAR with the improved aero package. 
But man, yeah. like Moto3, this is just their bread and butter at this point. It's almost going to get to the point where they're, they're almost in the situation that like some pro wrestlers talk about where they're like, oh, the audience has such high expectations now. They demand us to do these flips and massive suplexes and splashes every single show. So we've got to keep up in the ante. And like Moto3's in that situation now. It's like it's a boring race if there's only 256 lead changes per lap. So they're like, they're literally like, man, how do we keep improving this? Right, okay, you pass me that corner, you put that corner, that corner, that corner. Someone falls off over there and takes out half the field. Someone does an after-touch takedown like Burnout 3. That's literally how it's going to be in three years' time. Moto 3 is that levels of batshit insane right now, and I love it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievable right now. And, like, what also impressed me, there was 11, there was 11 maybe 12 bikes in contention for the win. Uh, at any given point and they were just passing each other in the most ridiculous spots I saw like Francesco Bagnaia go around the outside of the penultimate corner on two or three occasions to sweep back for the chicane and I'm like Francesco what are you doing <laughs> like I was watching from like behind a pillow half of the time it was just an unbelievable exhibition of riding quality from all of them involved it was an absolutely incredible Grand Prix if you have not seen this race Go out of your way and see it. It's it's on Daily Motion right now in full. Go find it. Thank me later. Um, it was incredible. And, and also, I've got to ask King, how pissed were you when Brad Binder made that mistake? Oh my god, <laughs> I, I I lost it. Oh, I was just like it was rage was real. It was like just just you know head in my hands moment. It was like why. <laughs> Yeah, like Binder, who has been so bulletproof this season. He's been on the podium every single round this season until this round. Uh, lost it through the penultimate corner. Had to come all the way across the side road. And he lost about 12 seconds and uh, pretty much settled for a very lonely 12th at the end of the race. Uh, Binder's podium streak had come to an end. But, uh, you know, minimal championship damage where that's concerned. I'll get to that in a minute. But... Uh, so, Pin and Dipset, the top six of this race was covered by 0.161 of a second. It's just <laughs> this one. The top six bikes coming over the line at the blink of an eye. And uh, it was Francesco Bagnaia, Pecco, as you like to call him, who's, who's he's been impressive all season long. Because we all know that Mahindra is not on the level of Honda and KTM, but it was their first ever. Moto free victory and uh, King, a wonderful moment for the Indian-based outfit. Yes, Mahindra words. I don't know for, for some reason. I think Mahindra and I think like lawn mowers. <laughs> it's like uh, to for them to finally get you know for the for them to get a victory is a big deal, especially in a class where we, where you are going up against KTM, one of the biggest bike manufacturers in the world. Yeah. Uh, absolutely agree, and obviously it's been K it's been KTM or Honda for as long as I can remember in the Moto Three class. So for a third factory to come into play like that is a tremendous effort. The nearest Mahindra other than him was John McPhee, who finished in 16th place uh, on the Peugeot branded Mahindra, um, 18 seconds away, which which goes which puts into perspective just how ridiculous Banya is. I mean, this is not the first time he's been in the mix for a win on this Mahindra this season. Um, Haref was a very famous example of that as well, where he's in there, in the mix, couldn't quite get it done, but this time he, 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 he didn't lead until literally about 10 metres before the line. He had just got the better run out of the final chicane, and he robbed Fabio Giantonino of what would have been an unbelievable win, because again, this kid is so impressive for Grassini. I mean, in a race where Enea Bastianini had crashed out from the leading group, 
Um, G. Antonino has stepped up brilliantly for Grassini as a rookie to finish in second. It was going to be third, but Andrea Minio was uh, demoted a position uh, for an illegal overtake on the final lap. He was, he was, he was given a one-place penalty. But uh, even so, Bagnaia, G. Antonino, Minio, Fanati, Antonelli, it's... An Italian one, two, three, four, and five. <laughs> to put into perspective there for you. And Antonelli's teammate, Jules Danilo, was up there in sixth as well. So good result from him. The second group over the line, Nicolo Belega in seventh, ahead of Joanne Mir in eighth. Uh, King will have a small smile on his face with Bo Ben Schneider finishing in ninth place there for the KTM team. Um, alongside uh, Lorenzo de la Porta filling in for the injured Jorge Navarro this weekend in tenth. And Philip Odell was in 11th, 11th place, 1.1 seconds off the win. It's not fair, Moto3, it really isn't sometimes, but uh, that's the nature of it. But again, it is an absolutely ridiculous, amazing display of rider skill and ability. Um, I don't know how on earth sometimes they all kept it upright pretty much throughout the Grand Prix. It's, it's an exhibition of everything that's great about bike racing. So if you've not seen this race... On behalf of all three of us, what are you doing? Go out of your way to watch it. It's it's absolutely insane. Um, but uh, also, one more fun fact before we move on as well. This was the first weekend with three brand new race winners since Kota 2013, where Mark Marquez took his first MotoGP victory, Nico Tirol took his first Moto2 victory, and Alex Rins won his first Moto3 race. So first time in three and a half years that uh, we've had three new winners in a Grand Prix weekend. Uh, so, yeah, an absolutely ridiculous weekend in MotoGP, and one you'd have to kind of see to believe, quite frankly. Um, amazing stuff. IndyCar! Hey, and, uh, hey IndyCar at the... Uh, uh, at the uh, Grand Prix of the uh, of Road America this time around, King, and wasn't it lovely to be back at Road America again? Oh, it felt good. Yeah, it was. It was nice to be at Road America. Very nice. I've always loved Road America as a track. It's a it's a lovely track. It's built for this kind of single seater racing, and and the racing did not disappoint. It was a very very good race. Just one problem: um, Penske curb stomped us all again. Uh, this time it was the pewter coloured car of Will Power that did the damage. This time, dominant pole position. Dixon was the only guy in the same postcode as him, really. In Oh, pardon me, in qualifying, and um, he would go on to pretty much lead every single lap, and uh, again, King, it's another reminder that Real Power is still really good at this old IndyCar thing. Yes, <laughs> yes, where he's gone from complaining that his title hopes are over to, you know, being <laughs> being in contention, basically in the course of, what, two or three races. That's the nature of IndyCar, 50 points for a win, and all it takes is a couple of good results, and just like that, you're back in the running, and, and you know, Real Power is now, you know, within 80 points of Pagina, with a double-point finale still to come later in the year. Who knows what could very much happen there? I mean, that's the nature of the series, and again, Power, absolutely superb. Fastest man on all, pretty much all weekend long. He actually got 54 points because he got the four bonus points for leading lap, leading the most laps, pole fast. Like, literally, there could there yeah. were no more po points he possibly could have got that weekend. He had literally the perfect weekend, and he was, like, one lap shy of the Grand Slam as well. I think the only reason he didn't get it was because he pitted a lap before Graham Rahal did. 
Um, yeah, Rahal led two laps, and I think Pagano led a couple of laps as well because of pitting off sequence, but Powell was just dominant all, all, all weekend long. It's a shame a little bit, which we didn't, we didn't really get a battle for the win till the end. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but... Um, it was a very like it was an interesting final lap, um, Johnson. Where like we because of Connor Daly's suspension failure, which was which was you know, a big accident for Daly. Luckily he was okay, but uh, and he was again. It's a shame because Daly was running in the top seven and you know on outright pace until his suspension broke and you know next thing you know he's in the wall. Um, that brought out the uh, the caution. And, and Johnson, how long was the caution break? <laughs> well, I mentioned this on, on Twitter and I think people misunderstood me. I was like, because yeah. uh, a, a few people said, oh, let's just let them go green while there's still safety vehicles on the track. I was like, no, I don't mean that. But I mean, just in general, it just feels to me like IndyCar clear ups take a while longer than in like other series. I don't know if it's a certain way they do things. I know in this case, they end up dropping Connor Daly's car, which was a bit amateur hour. Uh -huh. Um, just to, you know, rub, you know, add insult to injury. It's a bit like there was a uh, safety car cleanup a few years ago, a British touring car race at Brands Hatch, and someone's car was beached in the gravel at, at uh, Druids, and they tried dragging the car out rear end first, and the front bumper snagged and tore off. So yeah. it was just literally just to get the driver's just already sat there on the on the barrier. His his race like completely over, and he's just like, oh for fuck's sake, you know, you destroyed my car. Why more than I already have done? But yeah, it just it was a bit puzzling. It was like there was it. You came back after one commercial break and it was like, oh, they're going to be going back to green. No, they're padding. They've gone to another commercial break and come yeah. back. Uh, they're still padding. Uh, another commercial. But seriously, <laughs> one car went off here. This isn't like the big one at Talladega. So yeah. I don't know. I just, I don't know if it's just something they do. Maybe they're just very careful. Who knows? Well, obviously knows? they're not if they're dropping race cars. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. It's a little bit puzzling. Um, I guess Kanan wishes they'd cleaned it up a lap earlier. Maybe so, because on the restart, he was charging through the field and he they put a new set of sticker blacks on the car for the final stint and uh, Kanan was absolutely enraged in the car. Like he, he'd already done a couple of really aggressive overtakes on, on Push to Pass. Um, I was like Ray Hall and Pagano, and I think Hunter Ray was another one as well earlier in the race. Kanan was really on it this this weekend and uh, it was like a throwback Kanan for a second there. He was The way he was charging through and... King, he had a shot at the win during the final lap, but it seemed like it was going to be near impossible despite him having the superior corner speed. It just seemed that um, he didn't have a chance, and that was because power had stacked up three push-to-passes for the final lap. Yeah, it really seemed where it really seemed that for his one push to pass, Will Power could use one to defend, and then Power had two more to pull away for, you know, what the one-minute... 14 second lap yeah um, it's a long lap round there it's about a minute 40 or so about a minute 45 um, for a yeah. lap round there in those cars and uh, again power could just stuff his push to passes in I think the push to pass gives you the power I think for 20 seconds King I want to say I think, I think it's yeah I think seconds. it's 20 second maximum yeah 20 second maximum and obviously given that Road America's got long straights, that's kind of all you need, and Kanan only had one for the final lap, while Power had three, and that pretty much robbed Kanan, despite clearly being the faster man, of a real shot at the win, and in the, for me, King, we talked about this when we watched the race together, and the impression I got was that, like, is the push to pass just a little bit overpowered to, me, to you? Because it seems that I don't. I don't think it's particularly fair that a guy can use two or three 
push the passes on the same lap to defend. I think that's a little bit desperate, and I think that's kind of robbing the fans of more of a spectacle. See, I, I, I just want to jump in at this point and say that actually one of the reasons I've always really liked push to pass as compared to DRS in F1 is the fact it can be used in a defensive capacity. I think DRS is too much of a gimme for the car behind. Uh, literally, you can defend as much as you want. You get to a DRS zone, guy behind hits DRS, there's nothing you can do. There's no defense thing. I've always liked the fact that push-to-fast can be used in a sort of offensive and defensive kind of way, yeah. as well as you over a fast lap. Power boost back in A1 Grand Prix, back in the mid-2000s. Oh, yeah, exactly. Do you remember, um, do you remember like, in Toka Race Driver 3, we play like Formula Palmer Audi? They had very similar <laughs> yeah. things as well. Uh, PS2 memories, you know. Millennial kids, where are they all at here? Anyway, um, but the point you make about using them consecutively on the same lap, that's an interesting one. It'll be, almost be like a sort of double DRS kind of thing, I suppose. Yeah, where, where essentially you could use as many pushes to pass as you could fit on the lap, and it kind of makes it overpowered. I mean... Good on you if you save that many push the passes up that you feel like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, blow it all yeah, up. Yeah, Will Power. No, no one's blaming Will Power for not using them uh, push the passes earlier in the race. He was just that good that he didn't need them during the race, so he saved them. But it continued. Go on. Yeah, it, it, it just ends up where you have situations where it seems like you're going to have a close finish, but then it, it basically gets taken away because someone was smart with their push the passes. Yeah, I mean, you can't, obviously you can't criticise Power for this. He was so good this weekend, he probably could afford to save free for an emergency like this. And that's what, basically what this was, where Kanan was, just had the better car at the end. And, uh, I mean, I can't blame Power for doing that, but I feel like maybe if you if you held it to one use per lap, it would be a little bit better, I think. I, I like it where, uh, I sound like such a fanboy saying this, but I like <laughs> I liked it when the drivers were a little bit more vulnerable in that situation where, I mean, if, if Kanan's clearly the faster man, which he was in this instance, I feel like we were a little bit, I think we were artificially kind of robbed of a potential last lap scrap between Power and Kanan, basically. And, um... I, I, I don't know. I feel like, like, it, yeah, it was a little bit frustrating, but I feel like, like, Power was that good that he was able to save those, um, yeah. push to passes. That's just fine. Uh, and it's tactical. And I don't know, like, I don't know... If, if then looking at ways to change that starts to move in a slippery direction. I yeah. almost call it a NASCAR in the 2010s direction where, Ooh. like, yeah. we really need to do something here, so we must make this and this and that. And it's almost like, did that problem really exist in a huge way anyway? I'm not so sure if, like... Like, I don't know if... I mean, IndyCar is a sport where, for example, they've refused and haven't even looked at any potential for a green-white checker finish style. And I completely agree with that. So I don't know. I don't know. Like, if this is this if this happens a lot, where the leader can just harvest uh, push to passes and then use them to the point where he can't be passed, then you might have a problem. But I don't know, King. Where are you at on this one? Uh, like, I, I'm leaning towards Dre for the the one per lap. Maybe, maybe two. Or at per least lap. have a longer cooldown period. Yeah, like between have, each use. Like, we we play video games and usually like when you use like game games that have like certain special abilities have a cooldown period where you're not allowed to use them for a certain period after you used one already. Oh, make it make it like the old burnout boost bar. You've got to pull off great <laughs> apexes and like great overtakes to fill your boost bar up again. <laughs> or, or drive in opposing traffic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe it's, that's uh, not such. A, or uh, yeah, near misses. Can you imagine that? <laughs> 
I don't think you want that in IndyCar. Ask, ask Montoya. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a situation where it's not ideal by any stretch. But again, I don't, I don't blame Power for doing it, and it's, it's a minor point anyway. But I just feel like it was something that was worth debating because I think it was, in, it was an interesting finish. It was one that obviously we did, we didn't quite get the explosive climax of it. We could have gotten um, seeing Power, like Power would have probably gone like through nine tenths of the law to try and stay ahead um, on the final lap because that's what Will Power does, and Kanan is equally very aggressive. So it would have been a very fun final lap, but. Uh, we didn't quite get that, but um, still a, a very dramatic finish um, to what was, I think, a pretty darn good race. There were some good overtakes up and down the field throughout in multiple places. I, I enjoyed it. It was, a, it was a very good race, and it showed because we've already they've already announced that it was, this was the biggest ever attendance for a race at Road America, and they said they'll be back for next season, which I believe will be on June 22nd. So uh, great to hear that Road America is going to be is going to be back on the calendar seemingly to stay. Um, so yeah, great news for all concerned, and um, yeah, delighted to have it back on the calendar full time. Quick rundown of the full result: Willpower winning by just over seven tenths of a second in the end. As Johnson quite rightly said, he led almost every single lap and took the maximum possible 54 points. Um, the 50 for winning, the two points for pole position, a bonus point for leading a lap, and another bonus point for leading the most amount of laps. So 54 out of a possible 54 for power. Um, I think that's the first time somebody's actually hit all those trifectas in one race. I'll have to check that out later. But um, power ahead of Tony Kanaan in second. Graham Rahal, a very solid result from him in third. He'll be very happy with that after another struggly uh, kind of a weekend for Honda. Um, Ryan Hunter Ray quietly went about his business, but finished a very strong fourth place there ahead of uh, Helio Castro Nevis, who still has magnificent hair in fifth place ahead of ahead of Mr. Average himself, Charlie Kimball, finishing above average this time around in sixth place ahead of Juan Pablo Montoya in seventh. Now I've, I have to give a show, shout out to Joseph Newgard, and he broke. His, his clavicle, technical team for a, for a collarbone. Um, Which really hurts, folks. <laughs> yeah, sorry, during the last race at uh, Texas, the race that never was, basically. And they, I don't, know if, like, I don't know if Johnson saw it, I think it was late to the party, but during the race they showed the x-ray of his plate, and the plate is about six oh. to eight inches long, and it's got eight pins in it to keep it in place. Oh. <laughs> it's a gruesome <laughs> Um, I mean, I didn't see much of that section, but as I say, I had uh, my, my dad actually broke his collarbone one time back when he used to play rugby. And yeah, uh, that, that that hurt when you can see it like the, the sort of lump in the shoulder. <laughs> it's not pretty like literally like basic, basic facts here, folks. Hugon was effectively driving with one hand. He basically, basically drove with one arm and he finished yeah, eighth. Yeah, I remember that it's over back broke his collarbone when I don't know if you guys remember the Moto 2 race from last year at the Saxon ring where Tito Rabat got taken out of the final corner by Frankie Morbidelli and like Rabat did his collarbone in they had they put a plate in it and then he had a mechanical failure in a test at the Saxon ring fell on the collarbone and bent the plate Ugh. they had to take it out and replace it um oh, it was like Rabat had no luck that season last year it was brutal and yeah, like everyone I've ever that's ever told me about a broken clavicle will tell you it sucks. Mm. Like, like it is, it is an awful thing, especially if you do it to your writing hand, for example. I mean, think of the things you can't do with, with if you're writing if you're writing hand you can't move. 
it's uh, it's a real struggle. Uh, so the turn, Newgarden, despite that, started 20th after a spin and a crash in qualifying, but came through to finish in 8th. A majestic result for Newgarden, given the circumstances. Brilliant job of him in 8th place. He finished ahead of Spencer Piggott. Great drive from Spencer Piggott to get into 9th place. Um, nice to see the rookie have a real great result there um, for Red Carpenter Racing. Ahead of Carlos Munoz in 10th. The stateless Jack Horse, as you like to call him now, in 11th place. Ahead of Marco Andretti. Simon Pagano limped over the line in 13th after another Penske engine misfire. He's, that's, that's happened to him twice now this season. Like, Pagano's finally getting a, a bad beat or two by the looks of it. And uh, every neutral is thinking, yes, yes. There's <laughs> <laughs> still hope. Ahead of Hinchcliffe, Alex Rossi, Michaela Lotion, not now Sato, Sebastian Borde, Gabby Chavez, Chilton, Daly, who had the mechanical failure, and Scott Dixon, who had, I believe, he lost all the power in his engine at the start of the race, and uh, poor Dixon, um, a real brutal time for him to have an engine failure for Chip Ganassi Racing there, and finished at the back with just eight points to his name. Um, real unfortunate though that's concerned for Dixon but looking at the IndyCar Championship standings as it is now Simon Pagano still leads the way by 74 points um, Pagano with 375 to Helio Castroneves in second place now with 301 and bearing down on them now is Will Power in third on 294 celebrating that real run of form at the minute um, he's now ahead of Scott Dixon with 285 New Garden is still hanging in there in fifth place on 283 Canaan's second now puts him sixth with 280, ahead of Carlos Munoz on 262, Ray Hall on 261, Montoya on 259, uh, Rossi on 257, Hunter Ray on 256, and then Charlie Kimball on 255. There is literally seven points covering six drivers in the middle of the championship right now. That is absolutely ridiculous. Um, how closely matched those guys are. And then you've got Hinchcliffe on 242, Borde on 222, and Daly ran for top 15 on 186. Daly has got more points than Marco Andretti does. That should tell you all you need to know about the quality of Marco Andretti's season. Oops. <laughs> just, just throwing that out there. And uh, now we move on to the news. And... Let's talk some Formula One for a minute here, as we always seem to do on this show. Even and, when they uh, don't actually have a race, this is just what we do. Yeah, because Bernie, based Bernie, has given us some more news, Johnson and uh, King. It seems to me that Bernie's, you know, pulled off a bit of a masterstroke here, you know, getting the fans on side. It seems that he, this is a, a popular move. He wants to try and fix. <laughs> well, he's like the big show. Every so often he'll pull off a brief face turn, won't he? Yes, exactly. And he'll go back to being heel again in the same night. You get a wrestling reference in there, Jesus Christ! But yeah, he wants to, he wants to fix the payment system in Formula One, where it's not so broken that the smaller teams get paid so little compared to the big ones. And uh, King, we've been begging for this for years. It's it's like I'm glad this has finally been acknowledged as a problem. Uh, <laughs> I, like he he doesn't want to completely fix the system. He just wants to get rid of the historic payments. Now that, I'd, I'd still be in favour of that because, like, for those guys that don't know, for example, Ferrari gets $90 million just for showing up <laughs> as a bonus of a bonus payment. And in, obviously the older teams um, and the teams that win a lot get bigger slices of the pie, um, to put it in, in layman's terms. I've done posts about this before on the website that are much more complicated than this, but that's the basic way of explaining it. And uh, 
I mean, King, what's he proposing he does? He gets rid of the historic payments, so where does that money go? Just, just more balance towards the other teams? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sometimes it really is that simple, isn't it? But um, I've said before for a long time that the, F, the F1, I've said it on Dre Reeves, I've said it on the website, I've said it for years, that I feel that you want a more competitive sport, you give the teams more funding and you give the smaller teams more 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 funding so they can try and keep up with the bigger ones and I think I think it's almost a no-brainer at this point Johnson but obviously the bigger teams are not going to be also keen on that because they've got to protect their position too so it's it's a tetchy one isn't it Mm, well it's going to be like most things in Formula One if it needs a uh, a complete majority or a unanimous vote to pass it's not going to because it's going to be one of those things that's going to affect at least one top team probably a lot of them but uh, what this really reminded me of was at the back end of 2014, when Caterham went under and mm. uh, Mauritius, as they were at the time, were, were on the brink of absolute disaster, um, you know, we, we potentially, at that point, it really looked like Formula One was in dire, dire straits because Caterham had fallen off the cliff into the abyss. You know, Mauritius were literally clinging on, like, with their fingertips, with the debt collectors stamping each finger off. Um, We then had reports of Force India, Lotus, Sauber, a bunch of other teams being alarmingly close to the edge. We still have mutterings now that Sauber are desperately in in trouble in terms of cash. We had Lotus last year. Like, and I, I... I, I go back to that period at the end of 2014 specifically because around that time we started to hear a lot more details as to the money breakdown and the prize money financial yeah. uh, divides in Formula One. And the one thing that really occurred to me was these historical payouts. Literally, teams are getting paid a ton more than others just for turning up. Regardless of current performance, regardless of big deal, what have they done lately? And I understand, of course, you want to keep... It's, it's like a sort of loyalty thing. You know, you've been in the sport for a long time, Ferrari, McLaren, things like that. Obviously, they have to have some long-term reward for staying there. It's like a loyalty thing, as I say. But um, I mean, thanks. W- w- one of the things but, that is a oh. bit weird about the historic payments is that some teams who have been there for a long time don't get historic payments, like Sauber. Yeah, that's that's very straight. It, it is very much a sort of, it's it's like a, a loyalty card for those we like. If you've just been around a long time, but we didn't really care about you anyway, or or something like that. Like it's it's one that's, it's it's a ruling that's a little bit strange in itself. How it's so skewed in favour of teams that have been around a long time, and then you read closer, and not even some of the teams that have been around a long time even get that money. So it's yeah, it's no, broken in the extreme, and really does seem like it's something that's been thrashed out seemingly in secret by. I don't know. You know, Bernie maybe has his preferences. Of course, he, we should understand now. This is the guy who told Nico Rosberg he'd rather his teammate be champion because he's better as the face of the company, effectively. Um, yeah. I don't know if that makes Rosberg the Dean Ambrose of the piece, but who knows? <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's it's not very consistent at all. I'm assuming that some teams are going to be uh, deeply unhappy with it, but it's the sort of resentment that they're just sort of sitting on right now. And maybe Bernie is starting to lift the lid on something here. Who knows? This could be the greatest face turn in history, and it could also make a lot of sense because I, I think reforms to the payment split are long overdue. And I think anyone can see that when they take a look at the figures. Yeah, I mean, here's the situation. Basically, I found this. I, I may have um, <clears throat> borrowed a picture from Joe Saward here talking about this when he's written about the financial split in the past. Here's a basic breakdown of how the money is split. The commercial rights holder group makes about 1.8 billion every season. 
it's that is split 50-50 between the Formula 1 group and the teams. So they get about 850 million bucks each to split. Out of that split, by the way, Ferrari just gets a payment of $90 million just for being there, basically. So 2.5% of the Formula 1 group's share and 2.5% of the team's share just goes to Ferrari, period. Um, so Ferrari gets like a $90 million settlement straight away. Now, the Formula 1 group's half is split between Delta Topco Limited, expenses, taxes, debt repayments, Bernie, CVC's capital partners, other shareholders, etc. $10 million out of that goes towards any 11th and 10th place teams as like a token payment. Like, like, like That's what Mauritius basically got at the end of 2014. All they got was $10 million in bonus money, basically. That was it. As King rightly mentioned, $60 million went towards historical payments, and those were towards Mercedes and Williams. They got historical payments of $30 million each in 2014. Um, out of that group holdings, I think about 135 goes back towards the Constructors' Championship bonus fund, which I believe, King, is win split between the last, I think it's five seasons. Yeah, it's, um, I think five or three seasons, one or the other. Yeah, I think it's five or three. I, I want to say five. I'm not 100% sure. Don't quote me on that. But it's split between number of wins between the teams over the last five seasons. And that, that and the name for the most part have been Ferrari, Rebel and McLaren until Mercedes came along. Um, but they were taking a, a big chunk of that alongside the, the team split, which goes every team gets 40.5 million just for being there if, if you're in the top 10. That's an equal share. But on that, they also get a performance bonus from the team's half. Which, which equates to their constructors' finishing position, basically, and that's up out of a pot of like 450 million. So, basic rule of thumb: Ferrari gets the most. <laughs> I know you're all surprised. Um, Ferrari got about 200 million dollars in bonuses in 2014. Red Bull got about the same. Merck's got about 135, and their and their shares going to go up because of their obviously dominant amount of wins they've had the last two and a half seasons already. McLaren got about 120. You know, the smaller teams like Caterham got back, got about 50 million. Toro Rosso got 64. Lotus got Lotus got 85. Sauber, as King said, as an historical team, by they've been around for over 400 Grand Prix now. They've got they only got about 68 million. And Mauritius did not make the top 10 that year, so they only got a token 10 million dollar payment. That's why Mauritius, as we knew it back then, died. So there's your basic explanation as to how the money is roughly split up. Yeah. And yeah, it's 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 not ideal by any stretch. Obviously, it greatly rewards the top teams. The smaller teams get the smaller slice of the pie. Can't say I'm surprised. That's probably how it should be. But the extreme between one team getting 200 million bucks in bonuses compared to a team getting 10, I think that's absolutely ludicrous. I think it's starting to realize, like, whoever gets the most money, it, it doesn't even determine who wins, but no. it determines who survives, because, what, Ferrari gets paid the most, yet they haven't... Uh, the money hasn't really helped them. They haven't won a driver's championship since 2007 or a constructor since 2008. Yeah, I've only had about a handful of wins, like less than 10 wins since 2012, so... It, it's it's not been ideal, but yet they have 90 million going in before they even turn the wheel for the season, which is more than half the teams getting bonuses. So it's it's not healthy. It really should be ironed now. It goes without saying. I mean, I'm not saying that you know everybody gets paid the same. I think I'm, I, I get and I I understand that um 
that uh, the bigger teams probably should get a little bit more because they're the ones that are backbone in the sport from a marketing standpoint. But I do believe the smaller teams deserve a bigger slice of the pie than what they're getting right now. I mean, how can you ex ever expect a midfield team to be competitive if they're getting a third of what the bigger teams are getting? It's, it's not healthy. And we've seen the after effects. We've seen teams like Lotus have the bailiffs in at Spa and their cars being held on the circuit. And we, we, we've seen teams collapse and come back and, you know, never to be seen again either. So, overall, it's just not healthy at all, really. It's just it's just not a good look at all. And, you know, I, I, I can only hope it gets resolved. That Bernie has the pull to make this happen because I would like to see... I would like to see a more balanced system. But, uh, you know, pipe dreams and Formula 1 and all that. Um, a question for a friend of the show, uh, Vic Asher, the Rainmeister on Twitter... Send me a tweet, and this is also regarding a new story we got to talk about anyway. It was um, a question where he said, What do you make of Aguri's decision to leave Formula E at the end of the season, and do you think other teams will follow? And, um, King, we all seem to be aware of the news team Aguri yes. is selling their spot, uh, selling their team spot in Formula E at the end of the season. There will be no more. It, it seemed kind of obvious after the Amlin split from season one. But um, even so, not good. I mean, is this is this a precedent for the series going forward? How, how do you feel about it? Uh, I I don't think it's a precedent. A, a precedent. I I think it's more of a case where Formula E is going up in popularity. More manufacturers want to join the sport, and it's starting to it's starting to price the the lower teams out, the teams that didn't really have a lot of sponsor support, the teams that you know are already struggling to keep up in development if they're trying to develop their own you know powertrain but it, it just seems like they were they they left before they were squeezed out yeah i think maybe they felt like hey the sport's more popular maybe we can make a profit on our initial starting spot maybe recoup some of the losses we've got because aguri was a team that was still using its season one powertrain like they were basically using last season's car compared to everybody else that had developed their own powertrains and had gone about their own paths to try and find gains where they could. Aguri didn't have the money to do that. They stuck with their season one powertrain all the way through, and you know, and the Costa had some you know real moments of brilliance in the in the field this season. But again, the results have not really been there for Aguri. They've been very unreliable as well, which hasn't exactly helped the situation either. But. Um, it's a shame, and I know Jaguar was coming in, so I don't think, I don't think we'll miss them too much because I think people are very excited about Jaguar showing up for season three um, in September, which will be you know nice to see and all that. But I, I don't think it will be a, a, a precedent either. I think I think people I think more I think as King said I think more people are going to hop on the wagon. So I think teams could sell, for example, maybe if they can see there's a profit to be made, maybe they'll just sell their spot to somebody else to a factory or. You know, hop on this new electric bandwagon that uh, has been, you know, growing for the last three or four years now. Maybe, maybe it turns out like that. I mean, Johnson, you got you got a take on this? Uh, for me, I like I've not got a huge amount of a, of a takeaway from this, but uh, on the comment that like could this lead to other teams following? I don't think so. Not really. I don't get the impression that Formula E is this is going to start some sort of great uh, exodus of of teams and talent from the series I, I just <clears throat> I think Formula E is kind of stabilised now um, I think a certain amount of turnover of teams is going to happen as you say with Jaguar coming in with season 3 that's a big big character to bring in a big big manufacturing company to bring in uh, Formula E has its spot now it has its spot in the in the world of uh, electric power for automobiles is becoming a big deal whether it completely takes over 
we don't know yet. It's too far out, but it's becoming a viable player. Um, and therefore, Formula E has a big spot. And uh, you wonder if... I mean, there's... Uh, King, you might know a bit more about this. What's the status on this electric GT championship that I also hear about? I believe it's a French-based series. Yeah, um, I, I heard about it. I'm not... I'm not 100% sure about what it, the status is for their start next season. Yeah, so that's that's uh, interesting. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't get the feeling that Formula E is in any sort of trouble for this result. It's just a shame. You, you just lose a Guri from the top table. But then again, Mark VDS, we're going to quit GT racing. So it happens. Team turnover happens. So... Yep, it can happen to anybody. And, uh, yeah, I, again, by the time Jaguar rock up in September, I don't think anyone's going to be missing Aguri too much. But, hey, maybe they'll give away some more caps on Twitter. <laughs> Next, uh, let's talk about... Let's talk about Boston for a minute here, King. And it seems that the Boston Grand Prix has fallen into another debacle, by, by the sounds of it. Yes, uh, the Boston GP are facing a legal deadline until when they have to repay everyone who bought tickets before they cancelled the race it's not good I know I know friend of the show Sarah Connors the first lady of Motorsport 101 um, had, had tickets to that Grand Prix ready to go for, for September in Boston I know friend of the show Scott Baxter who, who, who's a big fan of ours who listens in hi Scott um, said he had bought tickets because he lives in Boston he, he was really excited for it turns out that uh you know, he can't, he obviously the race has been cancelled and he's, he's a little bit too far out to go to Watkins Glen. So, um, it seems that, you know, they've really got to pay these tickets back, King, but um, we've seen no sign of this happening yet, have we? I mean, that, that's, that's one of the big things that, that has stood this Grand Prix since this Grand Prix got cancelled. Like, well, I've seen no plans of a ticket refund plan of any kind. Or yeah. maybe a, Maybe oh we can read you, know, you can use a Boston ticket to redeem it for Watkins Glen or something along those lines. Yeah, it's... Uh, well, they have until the end of today, Tuesday, June 28th, to actually come up with a plan. Like, according to uh, local sources in Boston, uh, they've returned up to $400,000 to ticket holders, but they sold as almost $2 million worth of tickets. Yeah, didn't they say the promoters haven't got the money to pay them back? Yes, apparently that's the claim. They don't have the money right now to pay them back. Somebody call the bailiffs. We 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 got a problem here. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, that that's not good at all. And um, again, I hope it gets resolved. There's a, there was a lot of money spent on this Grand Prix, and it seems like the promoters didn't quite know what they were doing on this one. And uh, I, I know there's there's a lot of broken links and broken promises, and uh, it's not quite worked out the way everybody kind of expected it to. But yeah, they got they got to iron these out. And uh, if, if if Sarah, if you're listening, or if Scott, if you're listening, and you get offered a ticket refund, let us know. I'd like to hear if there's any story regarding that, or maybe a plan to maybe make make the tickets redeemable for Watkins Glen instead, or something like that. Well, I don't know. Well, the the Attorney General of the state of Massachusetts is reviewing this as a case. Oh wow! So this this, this could get ugly. Yes, we, we, could be, we could be talking court dates here. <laughs> Somebody get Harvey Spencer from Suits on it. That that, that should be fun. Yeah, um, a, a spokesperson for the state attorney general has told, has released a statement saying, "We are prepared to take whatever action is necessary to make sure ticket holders are made whole." Wow, isn't that's the kind of thing you want to hear if you're a ticket holder, right? Yeah. So, uh, 
yeah, good news indeed. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that that, that is a thing. Um, good, good to hear. Uh, moving on real quick. Let's let's talk Top Gear for a minute, because I know we've talked about Top Gear a lot on this show, and uh, you guys seem to like it when we go off topic a little bit. And, well, you uh, know, they just like us when we drop actual facts. Facts, <laughs> of course. But, uh, Johnson, there is a story that Matt LeBlanc wants out if Chris Evans is retained. I mean, th- this is another seemingly... <laughs> it really... Let's, yeah. This has been a tricky time for the new Top Gear, or new new Top Gear as we call it. Um, it was always going to be difficult, but the problem, one of the problems they've run into is, number one, the huge presenter list hasn't really worked out because it's just become inconsistent, and the people that... Um, and I think what the problem ended up being was that the BBC wanted big names on the show but they also are fully aware that guys like Chris Harris and Rory Reid are the guys who actually should be fronting the show because they're car journalists genuine car guys genuinely very entertaining on camera and no very much know what they're doing but they probably worried they did not have enough for media presence so that's why they had to go with Chris Evans leading a cavalry of guys you know Eddie Jordan from the F1 coverage Sabina Schmidt from old new Top Gear uh, Matt LeBlanc from Friends and other stuff Um, which leads me to problem number two Chris Evans the one who has fronted new new Top Gear all the way is the one that most fans dislike the most and that seems to be the biggest problem here all of my all of the complaints I mean I haven't watched much of the new Top Gear but what I have heard it just from the moment that Chris Evans tries to deliver the old style intro you're just like no no Chris no oh god no it's it's got it's gone already it's like either have the balls to go completely out there on your own and stamp your own identity on it or don't they've tried to pick this halfway house which is of course I was thinking about this earlier ironically whilst watching some episodes of old new Top Gear um and you think about it, that iteration of Top Gear started in, what, 2001, uh, I want to say, or maybe 2002. Uh, 2002. And it was only in about Series 5, I think it was, when it really started to kick on into mainstream appeal. So they had a yeah. good two to four series, at the very least, to get things together. I mean, no one remembers Graham Dore, who was the third host in the first series. No one remembers yeah. him. I mean, Clarkson first, just first jokes that... Go on. Was Jake door but still yeah exactly like uh, we don't even remember his name like Clarkson in interviews now he just says James May got lost for the first series so that's that's how much they remember about him Um, so they got James May in for the second series and at the time if you think about it who really knew in the general the general populace who really knew about Hammond and May Clarkson was the recognisable name um, and they they kind of hit a, a, a very much a home run in the same way that the people who cast the Harry Potter films hit an absolute home run with um Daniel Radcliffe, Rupert Grint, and Emma Watson. So, mm. but the the thing is, they had room to grow. The first four series were good. They had room to get the format together. If you watch some of them early episodes, they're almost unrecognisable. They are much yeah. more factual. They're much more down the straight bat. It was only when, by series four, they started doing cheap car challenges, a bit more of the adventures, a bit more of the funny stuff, crashing caravans and stuff, that they really started to think, hang on a minute, People enjoy three middle-aged men arsing around destroying stuff a lot more than just this pure consumer advice stuff. And then it really kind of flourished in there. This new iteration doesn't have that room. It was under a huge amount of pressure from the get-go, especially with Clarkson, Hammond and May, the the huge shadow of them lurking over in the corner with the infinite budget. Amazon just bankrolling them, saying, get another round of cocktails in the bar, lads. Go on, treat yourself on me. This new talk here has been under pressure from the get-go, and... It's, it's had a big 
uh, it's had a lot of trouble. And the problem is with Chris Evans, we know from previous history, and he's admitted it himself, he's not had a good reputation of being someone good to work with. In the TGI Fridays days, by his own admission at times, he was insufferable. So do you wonder if this has come back? Do you wonder if, you know, he's... For many people, he's just too grating on... It's almost like, Chris, just relax. Ease into it. Just be yourself. But he just can't on the camera. And you wonder if that's translating off camera to a degree. And honestly, I'm going to stick my neck out here. If they crawl through the rest of this series, which has already plunged to... What was it? Less than half of the viewers that he had at the start of the series, and that's a fact. Three million on last week's episode when it clashed with the Switzerland France game. There you go. That is a fact. And by the way, old new Top Gear clashed with World Cup finals at certain times, and I don't think the viewer ratings ever got that bad even then. Um, So if they crawl through this series and manage to stay on the air, I honestly think they might be onto something if they just go with a three-man team of LeBlanc, Harris, and Reed. Honestly, I think you'd get away with a good show with just Harris and Reed. But if you well, wanted the star power, I think LeBlanc would keep going well because he's got that chemistry. You know what I mean? Well, one of the things that was interesting is the the source that broke the story to the to the independent said that also said that uh, Chris Evans seemed to be jealous of the attention and praise which has been heaped on Chris Harris and Rory Reed in particular. Oh wow! Oh my goodness me! Ego. Ego's happening. Um, but it, it, it almost wouldn't surprise me. As I say, I feel like what happened is the BBC wanted Harris and Reed in there because they know how good they are. They just didn't trust them to have enough of a, a big name profile. That's why they started out on Extra Gear. And from the, from the get-go, what was everyone's thoughts? Evans is insufferable. LeBlanc's pretty chilled out. But why the hell are Harris and Reed on Extra Gear when they're the best two people in there? And so. I mean, Evans has proved with his Twitter rants that it's been getting to him. This is the problem. He, he has not had a sort of... He's, yeah. he's not been able to let this wash off like water off a duck's back. This has bugged him big time. And I do wonder if there's a little bit of envy in there now. He's, 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 he's clearly pretty insecure about the way things have gone. He, uh, he, the show was aiming for five, million, for five million an episode, which is a pretty modest target given what the old show did. The, the old show did average about six to seven most weeks. And he's not hit that. I mean... It's Clarkson having the May going has literally cut the audience in half, and it, the show had a decent opening week rate. I think it was four point four million for episode one, which was pretty solid. The problem um, is, it needed to smash it out of the park in that opening episode, and it didn't. And it didn't. Yeah. It didn't. And you know, the first episode is probably the weakest one of the series so far. Like yeah. this week's episode was actually pretty good. It was. I like the Rolls Royce Thorn review of Matt LeBlanc. I love the Chris Harris reviewing the BMW M2 and the Audi RS3. I think Rory Reed with the new Jaguar SV Type R was 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 amazing. It was a little bit ham hocked as I think it was like, well, why are you racing for 13 hours for the sake of it when you could have just left a little bit earlier? I thought that was a little bit pointless, but it's still a really great segment anyway. And um, talking the story about the old Jaguar driver and it was 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 awesome. Like a little bit of lore there was a. Really, really well done. And, and you can tell that the BBC recognised Chris Harris's talent because they're effectively letting him continue to make his Chris Harris on Cars videos with Neil Carey on the Top Gear yeah. website. I, I think that was literally Chris Harris's first line of him on the main show is my first day on the job at the BBC and they, some for some reason, trust me to drive a £5 million automobile. <laughs> <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, that that's the nature of, the, of things, and I, I completely agree with what Johnson ranted about there for the last five minutes. My bad. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm in total agreement. I think Chris Evans is the biggest issue with this show, more so than the the carousel of presenters, the neglection of other hosts. I think the the backbone of the show going forward needs to be Rory Reed, who has impressed me massively since this show's begun. And I always knew Chris Harris was going to be great, but Rory Reed's been the real surprise of this series, and I think he's been superb. Let's be honest, he um, was the guy we were joking about beforehand, yeah. who no one had a clue who he was coming in, and he's kind of come <laughs> out of nowhere. <laughs> The nobody from the random gadget show spin-off on Sky One that nobody watched, but he's turned out to be a tremendous presenter in his own right, and he could easily be, for me, lead anchor of this show going forward. I think That's he's nice. done a... Go on. He's he done an absolutely superb job, and I think he needs to be the guy for this, for this show going forward. I think he's got the confidence, he's got the charisma... He can clearly drive a car well enough. He's comfortable, you know, to get in faster cars and drive them well. As King made a very good point off the air before we started the show. When you see Evans drive a faster car, he only drives it in a straight line. He can't, <laughs> do, he, he can't do the fancy driving for TV that Harris or Sabine Schmitz can do. And even um, even Rory has done a bit of fancy driving where he took the, the Ford Focus and put it into drift mode. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's um, the thing with him and Harris. They are proven car journalists. They know what they're doing with this stuff. And you you just wonder, like, as I say, my pitch to put LeBlanc, Reed, and Harris... I think Harris and Reed just together on their own show would be great. But I think for yeah. an hour-long show like Top Gear, the three-man team works and it's part of the format. Do, you tr- do the BBC trust having their biggest institution, and a very British institution, let's be real, let's not be too ironic in the wake of what's happened, but... Do they trust having their most British and most iconic of shows being fronted by an American guy? And let's be real, in their eyes, two unknowns in the wider sphere. Yeah, I mean... I don't think they do. I I don't think they trust him. I I, I mentioned this off-air before the show, but... Let's be be clear. Yes, they're unknowns, but they're also black as well. I wouldn't... uh, Well, you know... (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) As the white guy, I now not I'm not sure what to say next, but Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I, I think what this is gonna be me and Dre's domain. Yeah, like this is this is where this is where we people of colour come into play here. <laughs> I'm just um, gonna say nothing. Yeah, good idea. Trust uh, <laughs> <laughs> me, it's for your own good. Um I agree. I feel I I mean I don't want to get too deep into this because this is a murder in podcast at the end of the day, but there is a, definitely an issue with representation on on TV. That I don't believe there is enough people of color hosting hosting certain shows. Um, you know, it's, it's it's worse in certain areas than others, in my opinion. Obviously, much of the made of things like, for example, Hollywood whitewashing. We've got you could go into into that for minutes oh, yeah. on end, like John Oliver did, but. On TV, I think there is still stigma over, you know, certain hosts. I mean, I, I, I mean, the way this country is right now, it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of people between their own fools, fools are saying, oh, I don't like Chris Harris. He's black and he acts charismatic and a bit crazy. You know, the guy that calls himself Harris Monkey on Twitter. <laughs> um, it kind of plays up for that kind of criticism, essentially. And 
I, I mean, I, I could easily make the accusation that the BBC are institutionally racist, like a lot of companies are. Where yeah, yeah, they're not gonna they're gonna put a guy down who's black and what. But I and, mean, you know, it being the BBC, it, I would, I had like the gut feeling that people would complain because they feel like oh, the yeah. BBC hired them just because they were black. Yeah, yeah that's what I think would be more of a thing. Like there'd be more of a backlash around that. Like yeah. I don't I don't but, disagree at all about this. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, look at the reaction when Sabina Schmitz was announced. Oh well, they had to have a woman in there, didn't they? Uh, politically correct BBC. Uh, Brexit. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it's it's a it's a delicate matter, and there's no real right answer here because on the other side of the coin, like you say, people will accuse the BBC of being too politically correct and feeling like oh they're being diverse for the sake of being diverse not because of it they're the best people for the job and me personally I had no problem with Sabine Schmitz being announced as a host I thought she was great and you know like every, both Nürburgring segments she'd done I think she was superb in and you know I think she could easily do it and she hosts the German version of Top Gear anyway so that, that I don't see why, why that would ever be a problem yeah she but, was one of know. the most experienced people you could have hired like I have a feeling we're going to talk about this later on. Like the the only way you could have gotten someone else more experienced in hosting a motoring show is if you get someone from Fifth Gear or Top Gear USA, mm-hmm. which has recently just been cancelled. So yes, exactly. I guess Tanner Faust. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's it's a delicate one, and you know there's there's no right or wrong here. There's 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 minefields on both sides of the discussion here, quite frankly, in terms of either a hiring because of diversity or hiring trying to avoid diversity. There's it's 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 a delicate matter and it's not an easy one to address. Um, but I feel like again on this show, I've always believed we should have these this kind of conversations because they're the conversations that many people are afraid to have, um, especially when it comes to things like race. And it's I know it's very easy to say that oh you just you just baiting the race issue, but um, you know it's one of those things where. I feel like these these discussions need to be made. So, you know, one of those things. Right, let's move into your viewer questions real quick before we, 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 before we get out of Dodge. Um, shout out to, to Rhino GT4, who I know is a big fan of the show. And, and he's, he's, I didn't know he plugged the show as much as he's done on, on stream and on YouTube. So thank you very much for that, Rhino. I didn't realize he was such a big fan. I've always been a fan of your work myself. Do you know what's funny about that? Yeah. yeah, you're just about to say. Do you know what's funny about it? I recently have started, I'm hoping to continue, a Gran Turismo 4 Let's Play series, mainly because I saw his one. Yeah, and the man, <laughs> the man like, he's the only man on YouTube with a complete Gran Turismo 4 Let's Play. And that means you're talking over 500 hours of content there. I mean, the man is a masochist, and I applaud his bravery for even attempting something that crazy. So um, props to him for that one. But uh, he said there's a question, he said... How about your thoughts on the aggressive hug from the recent NASCAR truck race or whatever race it, race it was? Johnson, this one's all yours. Why did I know this one was going to go? Well, I don't think anyone, anything I'm going to say about this is going to do it any justice at all. You have to YouTube this. This was in the NASCAR truck race at uh, Gateway uh, Race International Raceway. Um, they ha- they had a sort of separate weekend from the Cup Series, which were at Sonoma, and it was Spencer Gallagher getting into it with John Wes Townley. Um, and by getting into it, well, I mean NASCAR. It's famous for you know, oh boys have at it. Robin is racing. Oh, you know, swing throwing punches, throwing helmets and and stuff and. 
and all this this kind of thing. Well, um, I don't think you've ever seen competitive bear hugging, have you? Uh, I think we saw less technical wrestling on Monday Night Raw the other night. Um, this was literally a case of two guys who are normally, by all accounts, very nice guys in the paddock, particularly uh, Gallagher, who were obviously annoyed with each other and I think don't really didn't really know how... Like, this fight for want of a better word, would have been more cringe had they basically done that thing like you do in, you see nerds doing in secondary school and kind of do slapsies each other. <laughs> like, yeah, get off me. It was basically that sort of bad. They sort of hugged. And then I think at one point, John Westanley actually pulled quite a sick DDT out of the locker. That was quite yeah, good. Yeah, I just saw Jake the Snake Roberts would have been pleased with that one. Um, he basically pulled dirty deeds on him. Um, yeah. This was just insanity. As I say, it was just... I think both guys, it's a classic example of how in the moment they were. And then it was only afterwards they sort of realised, hang on, we've never swung a fist at someone in our lives. What were we doing? <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> sounds crazy enough, but uh, there you go. And also I want to give a shout out real quick to Owen Harrington. He sent me a question about Dirty Air. We've kind of already talked about it a lot on previous episodes. I didn't really want to bring it up again. Um... We're, probably, we're getting cars with fatter tyres and seemingly less downforce and more mechanical grip next year. So for all we know, we could be seeing the effects of that next year. So, you know, cross your fingers and all that. But a shout out to you, sir. Thanks for being a fan as ever. And uh, thanks, obviously, to you guys for listening. Obviously, you can find us on YouTube. Make sure you subscribe to us on YouTube if you're not already, even if you are, because apparently YouTube's had a clean-out today of inactive subs, and they may have accidentally, if not maybe, have taken away some active ones too. So that's youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. It's a good thing um, I wasn't so planning any, like, 500 or 1,000 subscriber-like specials yet, was I? <laughs> on the verge of uploading, and then, oh, we've lost 100 subscribers. No, no, but um, also, so just just double check if you haven't already, if you're listening to this, if you haven't already, make sure you have, you know, hopefully that that's not affected us too badly. We lost like three whole subs, so, you know, we're clearly badly affected by this. Um, if you haven't already, and if you really like the show, why not support us on Patreon? You can, and there's a special promotion this month. Normally, it's a $5 level uh, minimum requirement, but for the month of July, to say sorry for this last week's episode being delayed. Sorry. Yeah, for, yeah, thanks, Johnson. <laughs> no, yeah. genuinely, I, I felt bad for Dre being like, oh, it was um, technical problems and stuff. It genuinely yeah. was all me. I'm sorry about that. I'm the one that edits and puts the episode together, and <laughs> stuff happened. Life got in the way, but it's not an excuse, so my bad. Yeah. Exactly, technical problems. <laughs> um, but throughout the entire month of July, if you're a Patreon backer at any level, so minimum being a dollar instead of five, you will get early access throughout the entire month of July. And trust me, cross your fingers, there is there could be something very big coming with the channel and the podcast very, very soon. So take it from me, if there's a time to be a Patreon backer, now is a very good time. Just trust me on this, okay? Um, no, seriously, you should trust always, him. Yeah, just, just throwing that out there. It... it, it Stay tuned. Uh, if you're on Snapchat, follow me at Harrison. Well, I might tease something later regarding oh. that. <laughs> just, just throwing that out there. Um, but if you haven't already, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Harrison 101 HD. Adam is at AJ underscore Bomber Sports, and Ryan King is at Ryan Eric King. That's with two Ks. Thank you all very much for listening, and uh, you know we got a nice, good, chunky episode this time around. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. <laughs> Until then, that's been Jackass. Thanks for watching. Sayonara. <laughs> Bye.
on it, mate. I cannot believe you are the world champion!